appreciate the opportunity to speak to you again tonight. And thank Brother Dugas for allowing me to uh, teach these lessons. I'd like to quote our scripture that we've been using as a text, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, just to bring it to your attention once again. Hebrews 12 and 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And so what we're dealing with in these few lessons is vitally important to our Christian experience. Indeed, it is our Christian experience, the walk of holiness. Let's pray as a congregation right now to ask the Lord to bless this concluding lesson in the series. Oh Lord, we thank you for your people tonight, for your church, for the opportunity to gather in your presence. We ask that you would take this service under control. We ask for your divine anointing, your blessing. Enlighten our hearts as we study your word once again. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. Let our minds be open up to your spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for the confidence that we have that you hear and answer prayer. Amen. 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 Praise God. Amen. This last lesson on the subject of holiness, let me remind you also of our definition that we've used for holiness the past couple of nights. That is, it's separation from and dedication to. If you study the scripture, you'll find very definitely that holiness involves a different type of lifestyle than the world. There is a definite separation from the worldly thinking, the worldly value system, worldly ideas, worldly actions. On the other hand, it, holiness is not meant to be a negative experience, but it's a positive experience, and that is you are separated from the world in order that you can be dedicated unto the one true and living God. It's kind of like the marriage vow. You agree to forsake all others, but that's not meant to be a detrimental thing. That's not meant to be a negative thing. That's not a minus. But you forsake all others in order that you may enter into this sacred lifelong vow with the one you truly love. And it's only by forsaking others that you can truly have a marriage with the one that you want to be married to. And so we don't look at that, we don't look at love as a negative thing, we don't look at the marriage relationship as negative, but we look at it as something very beautiful, something ordained of God, that, that love, the love relationship on this earth is really the highest relationship, I suppose, and that's why the Lord even likens the marriage of a husband and a wife to that of the relationship between Christ and the church. And that's not a negative thing, that's totally positive but yet it involves a forsaking. The same thing with holiness. We don't teach it negatively. I don't believe that it's a negative message. I do recognize that it involves a separation, but it's a separation from in order to have true life in the Spirit, in order to have abundant life. Amen. We have to die out to sin so that we can marry the risen Christ. Amen. Praise God. Let me give you one principle that is very basic to all of our discussion of holiness, and that is the old-fashioned word is temperance. Temperance in all things. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, the Apostle Paul describes how important it is to have temperance. And to translate that into modern English, it simply means self-control. Self-discipline, self-control, moderation. And that is a good watchword in everything we do. 
Uh, a lot of holiness can be simply understood by that word, temperance or self-control. You want to talk about holiness of dress? A lot of it is summed up self-control, moderation. Don't go after all the fads and fashions of the world. Don't go to one extreme or the other, but be moderate. Have control. You talk about uh, the physical body and good stewardship of the body. A lot of it is summed up in that simple yet uh, very powerful word, self-control. Self-control or temperance. It's one of the ninefold aspects of spiritual fruit mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about self-control. It says if you can rule your own spirit, you are better than someone that rules a city. A person that cannot control his own spirit is like an ancient city without walls. And all the ancient cities had walls to guard against uh, people that would attack, attacking armies. And what it's saying is if you can't control your own spirit, you're like a city without defenses. You'll fall prey to every, any and every situation that comes along. You're at the mercy of what other people do to you because you can't control yourself. You react according to circumstances. You react according to other people. And so if we are really going to be successful in our Christian walk, we must learn self-control. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, what he's saying is everybody that competes to win, talking about an athletic contest, contest, everybody that competes to win in a contest, he is self-controlled, self-disciplined in all things. If you study anything about the athlete, you'll find how regimented they are in their physical training. Uh, They don't drink, they don't smoke, they... uh, exercise hours upon hours a a day. They watch their diet carefully. They have a curfew many times. Uh, Talk about being restrictive in their activities. The athlete is highly restrictive, not for moral reasons, but for the sake of winning a corruptible crown, a a crown that will fade away, just temporary transient glory of winning a little game. Now, if they will do that for an earthly crown, how much more should we do it for an eternal crown? And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. They do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. I'm not just um, dashing madly in my Christian experience, but I'm running with purpose. I'm uh, training. I'm pacing myself. I am running with the aim of finishing this race. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, I don't just shadow box. I don't just flail in all directions, but I've got a strategy. I know what I'm doing. I'm controlling what I do. I keep under my body. In other words, I bring, I discipline my body and bring it unto subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And if the apostle Paul recognized the possibility of him falling away, how much more should we? He's saying, I've got to discipline my body. I've got to bring it under subjection. I've got to keep it under control. Because if I don't, it'll get the upper hand and I'll lose what I have in God. Though I preach to many others, I can lose what I have if I don't maintain that self-control in my life. You know, every good thing, if taken to excess, can be wrong, can be dangerous. Think about that. That, that shows us the, the danger of always harping on one little thing or always... Zeroing in on one thing. We've got to have balance in our lives. 
Take a delicious meal. If you eat enough of that food, it'll make you sick. Take uh, beautiful sounding music. You keep turning the volume up loud enough, it'll hurt your ears. Any good thing, if taken to imbalance or excess, can become harmful. Any virtue, if taken to extreme, can become a vice. We think of courage as a great virtue. But if someone is so courageous that they're charging when the rest of the army is retreating, or they charge uh, 30 minutes before the assault, that's not considered courage. That's not considered something to be admired. That's called being foolhardy. Fools step in where angels fear to trod, the poet says. And so if you take that courage to an extreme, you don't do yourself any good. You get yourself killed. You'll ruin the plans of the army. You're foolhardy. On the other hand, if you don't have courage, you become a coward, and that's no good either. What I'm saying is there is a median there. There is a middle. There is a place of moderation, of self-control, where you do the right thing. If you go too far to one extreme or the other, then you get into dangerous territory. So that's a good watchword for our lives, self-control. Another thing that I would just like to stress here as we're discussing some more principles of holiness, holiness really boils down to simply being Christ-like, which is what the word Christian literally means, Christ-like. We must ask ourselves, what would Jesus do in this situation? How can I have the mind of Christ? The scripture tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It uses a word that's the same word that they would use for putting on clothes. It means to clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Wrap yourself up in Him. Uh, there are many scriptures that talk about letting the mind of Christ being you. Let, talking about letting the Spirit of Christ control you. Letting the personality of Christ shine through. Don't give any occasion to the flesh, the scripture says. Let me read several passages. Galatians 4.19. Listen to what it says. Galatians 4.19 tells us, My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Now, there are already Christians that he's talking about. They already have the Spirit of Christ. You say they have Christ in them. But there is another aspect. There is the initial receiving of the Spirit of Christ. But there is also the lifelong process where Christ is actually formed in us. That is, we grow up into maturity. The mature personality of Christ, as it were, takes control of us. And that has to... That is a gradual process where we grow up in God or Christ grows up to a maturity in our lives as we progressively let Him control us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. It says, But ye have not so learned Christ. You haven't learned Christ according to all these sins that we've been talking about. If so be that you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. So you have to put off the old lifestyle and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. If we're going to live holy, we've got to put on the new man, which is formed after Christ. We've got to get out of those old garments, the old lifestyle, the old pattern, the old habits, and that does include our actions, our physical appearance, the literal clothes we wear. But what he's saying is like we have an old lifestyle, an old personality. We've got to get rid of that. And we've got to put on a new personality, the personality of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Romans chapter 13 and verse 14 summarizes it up very well. Romans 13 and 14, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put Him on. Be enveloped and surrounded by Him. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Just translate that in modern English. Don't give the flesh any opportunities. Don't let the flesh gratify its own lust. You know that old expression, you give them an inch, they'll take them out. That's what the flesh is like. You give the flesh a little opportunity before you know it, it grabs hold of you. And that's why we've been teaching about the, the lust of the eyes, trying to guard your eyes. We've been talking about the mind. Because if you let your flesh have just a little peek into some of these things, it's not content with that. That's the thing about it. Uh, you watch something that's not clean and wholesome. You read something that's not clean and wholesome. Uh, perhaps uh, young couples or young uh, unmarried people start getting too familiar in their dating habits, and you would think the flesh would be happy to get away with it a little bit. But you know, the flesh is never satisfied. It, it, pretty soon, uh, you can read the stories of drug addicts. That same dose doesn't give them the thrill anymore. They've got to increase it. They've got to go to a higher drug. Uh, you read people that have been, about people that have been caught in pornography, and after a few weeks and months, uh, that one type of uh, pornographic material no longer satisfies them. They've got to go in something deeper. You read about people that have been involved in a moral lifestyle. What they've been doing doesn't satisfy them any longer. What I'm saying is you give the flesh just a little opportunity and say, well, maybe it'll be happy. It isn't. It wants more. It wants more. It wants more. And it's not satisfied till it destroys you totally. There's only one solution to that. The solution is not to compromise with the flesh. The solution is not to give a little bit to to pacify it, you know. But the solution is don't give it any chances. Lock it out of your mind before it ever comes to you and you'll solve a lot of problems before they begin. You know, Samson thought he could placate Delilah by telling her a little lie. Well, uh, my secret is in this. My secret is in that. He thought that would solve it, but no, that just intensified it. And so finally, before he knew it, he was saying, weave the seven locks in my hair. He thought he wasn't revealing his secret, but notice he was getting closer. He was talking about his hair. And finally, he did reveal the secret, and he lost his strength without even knowing it, really slowly and subtly. And the only solution is to put yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are baptized into Christ, and that is not just speaking his name at one time and then forgetting about it thereafter, but we have been immersed into the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to live in him, to move in him, to walk in him. And don't give the flesh a chance. Amen. Really, I could summarize all the principles of holiness. What would Jesus do? What if he's faced with this, with this decision of ethics? He's faced with perhaps going here or doing this or watching that or wearing that. What would he really do if he were in your shoes? What would he advise you to do? If he were standing right there talking to you, would you feel comfortable talking that conversation? Would you feel comfortable wearing what you're wearing or doing what you're doing, inviting him to go along with you? And that's really how we must think. We've got to put on the Lord Jesus Christ because he is with us in a very, very real sense. Amen. Praise God. We sure want him to be with us in a moment of danger, don't we? We say Jesus and we expect him to be right there. But what about in our thought life? What about in the different various things we do? He's there just as real as any other time. Amen. Well, I want to talk about some practical applications tonight. We've talked about having the fruit of the Spirit. We've talked about having Christian attitudes. We've talked about our thought life. 
Our physical body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, being good stewards of the physical body. We've dealt with the tongue, the sins of the tongue. We've dealt with the eye. And tonight I would like to talk about the outward appearance. The outward appearance, adornment, dress, and hair. Because believe it or not, the Bible does have some very specific things to say about the subject. You see, our outward appearance reflects our inmost selves to others and to God. It really is. What we wear and how we look is a statement to some extent of what we believe, what we identify with. I mean, isn't that the whole reason why people wear uniforms? Why does our world, why do we have such things as uniforms? To identify what we are. The soldier, the nurse. And not only that, but maybe you wouldn't exactly call them uniforms, but the businessman's suit, that just as much identifies him as anything else. If he were to come to his office or go to sign a contract not dressed appropriately, it would give a very definite signal to those people. Uh, if you look everywhere you turn, you find that people use clothes to represent who they are and what they're doing. Uh, even though people that dress casually, the hippies, look at the hippies, they very deliberately use their clothing to make a statement of their rebellion against society, of their, the type of lifestyle that they were choosing to live. Their hairstyle, their clothing style, everything about them, they were making a very deliberate statement of identifying with this certain protest movement. And so it is. The things that we wear do give an expression of ourselves, not only to other people, but to God. You notice in the Old Testament, somebody wanted to repent, they put on sackcloth and ashes. They're making a statement to God. The priests wore special dress on the festivals, the feast days, the people wore special dress. They were trying to express their inner feelings and attitudes to God. And one of the ways that you do that is by the clothes you wear. Now, the women can probably relate to that even more, perhaps, than the men. But isn't it true that sometimes you pick something to express your mood? And you can look in the closet and say, I don't have anything to wear. And that's not literally true. You've got all these things to wear. But what you're saying is there's just nothing that fits my mood at this time or fits the occasion at this time. It's just not appropriate because your dress is saying something about you and it makes a statement about you. But now, let me explain this too. Also, sometimes dress affects or changes your mood and your behavior. And in the long term, it can change your character. And that is... Sometimes you pick out the dress in order to brighten your mood. Not to reflect your mood, but in order to change that mood. The, what you wear can very definitely change your attitude and your mood. Now, it does so by changing your perception of yourself. You know, if you think that you're really brilliant, then you're going to tend to act that way. If you think you're the life of the party, you'll act that way. And what, what other people think of you, you know, if they perceive of you as the life of the party, you will tend to live up to their expectations. Uh, they've done studies showing that children that going into a classroom and the teacher will be told, well, these students are brilliant students. And then, and then the teacher will be told this another uh, group of students, they're just ordinary students. And did you know those students are actually perform better even though in reality they all were tested out the same? But because the teacher had a different attitude towards them, acted towards them differently, those kids picked that up unconsciously and that motivated them to live up to those expectations. Well, what I'm getting back to is the clothes you wear that affects you. What you think about yourself is reflected in the clothes you wear. If you don't have high self-esteem, uh, your clothes will reflect that. And if you wear those clothes, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll reinforce that esteem. In other words, 
uh, I know how it is with, to everybody to some extent, especially I think the women can relate to this. If you're wearing very, very sloppy clothes and maybe you're in a bad mood, just by dressing up, you can make yourself feel good, make yourself feel a lot better, you know? Go take a bath and comb your hair, get all fixed up, and even though the situation is the same, you feel like you're ready to do something. You feel good about yourself. And same way, other people look at the way you're dressed, and they'll react to you on the way that you're dressed. You know, if I was, uh, I dress, if I'm dressed in a suit like this, and I go downtown, I buy something, go to a store, or go to the airline, people will react to me in a certain way. And if maybe I have some problem in the store, or some problem getting a reservation, and, and I act politely and firmly, and they'll tend to respond deferentially, and, and because I look like a a businessman or a person that knows what they're doing, a person to be respected. But if I go there in a T-shirt, and uh, I'm 29 years old, I look probably fairly young, if I just go in T-shirt and jeans, I'll probably get a totally different reaction from those same people. This is the way I dress. Now, I'm just trying to give you some practical, common-sense examples to let you know that the way we dress is an expression of ourselves, of what's inside, and also it helps determine what we are. You act out a part long enough, you become that part. And I can, let me give you some more examples. You ever notice a girl, maybe a young girl, that when she first starts wearing makeup or first starts wearing a jewelry of various sorts or uh, first starts wearing some maybe suggestive, suggestive clothing and there is often a change in her very personality. The first time in her life, she begins to perceive of herself as seductive. Before that, she just thought of herself as a kid, a girl. But now, people start staring at her. She starts picking up uh, notice from other people and comments and so on. And so her very attitude toward herself changes. Her very actions change because of the way she's dressing. It changes the way she thinks about herself. It changes the way other people think about her. And her, her behavior changes. Now, I think when somebody receives the Holy Ghost, they have the Holy Spirit. They've got a repented heart or they couldn't have received the Holy Ghost. But if over the long run, if they don't implement some practical principles of holiness, including in the outward dress, they will lose a lot of this sense of holiness that they have. Because if they act out a worldly part long enough, you'll revert to those ways of thinking about yourself and about other people. I don't think holiness is in the dress. I think it's in the spirit. But what I'm saying is the outward appearance can gradually affect the inward spirit. It will, eventually. Have you ever known, I, I knew some girls in high school that they never, you never saw them wearing a dress. They always wore pants. Maybe you know people like that. And maybe on a very rare occasion, they would somehow end up wearing a dress. And you could tell how uncomfortable they were, how unladylike. On the other hand, I would notice these same girls, the way they would walk, the way they would sit, prop up their legs, slouch around. It was a more masculine uh, behavior. It was things they couldn't have done in a skirt. And so they were very definitely absorbing traits of masculinity because of the type of clothes that they were wearing exclusively. And you would hear people say, well, you know, I wish my girlfriend would wear a dress. Or whenever we go out, I always ask her to wear a dress. Because even the people in the world, they notice somehow she acts more feminine in that kind of situation. So here, these are just a lot of examples. Now let's go to some scripture. Well, and let me tell you one more thing, and that is, what are some dangers of ungodly dress? Why are we dealing with dress? Why does God deal with dress? I'm going to show you in a minute. Let me tell you why. Here are some dangers of unholy, immodest, ungodly dress. One of them 
is the lust of the flesh. That kind of dress will appeal to sensual desires. It will arouse or cater to sensuality. Another thing is the lust of the eyes. It will appeal to the eyes. And then a third thing is the pride of life. It will develop or reinforce the ego in the person. Uh, they, they learn to put uh, their, their pride in fr- false values. Not in, they don't, instead of concentrating on the things that are really important inside of God, the inward man, obedience, holiness, they concentrate on the physical appearance, the outward man. And so it molds the individual, it molds society also. I'll just, let me give you an example of this. I was reading something by a, a woman of, in the feminist movement, and she was trying to say that a, a woman and a man should be equal in every way. And I think in the sight of God, a woman and a man are equal. Rights and privileges and value and intelligence and so on and so on. But I don't think that the roles of husband and wife or male and female are interchangeable in our society, or father and mother. I think the roles are very different, and we've got to preserve those roles. But this woman's point was that a woman and a man have got to be absolutely equal or the same, what she interpreted equal to mean treated the same way in every respect. And she said the way to do this, as long as women try to act feminine, as long as women let the men open the doors for them, as long as women wear frilly clothes, as long as women wear skirts and dresses and, and as long as they try to fix their hair extremely feminine, then men are going to treat them different. And she says, we don't want that. We want to be treated like a man. And she, an example she gave, she said, I stopped wearing dresses and skirts, only wear pants. And then she listed some other things of, of which you would think of just good hygiene or good femininity that she said, I stopped doing this, I stopped doing that, stopped doing that so that I would be treated just like a man. Now, the feminist movement, a lot of them are really trying to do that. But God says there is a distinction between male and female. But I'm saying the feminist movement recognizes that if they can get everybody to act the same, then they will destroy that distinction between male and female. If they can get everybody to dress the same, they will destroy that distinction. We in the church have got to be as smart as they are and realize that if we're going to preserve the God-given distinction, it's got to be distinct in our mannerisms and in the way we dress. And that is exactly what God has said. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5. Deuteronomy 22 and 5. You know, I sometimes wonder about people, our children, or even us as young people, people my age. We have grown up in a society that really has departed from godly principles. Now, I can talk to my mother and, and people that be the age of my grandparents. They can remember a time when Women all wore dresses. My mother remembers a time when a lady, a woman, was uh, arrested in the street for wearing shorts in public. She was arrested for indecent exposure. And, you know, previous generations can remember when women had long hair or when women uh, usually wore dresses wherever they went and so on and so forth. But our generation is growing up not even knowing that and that it's warping the value system of a whole generation. Deuteronomy 22 and 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Very simple principle. Woman shall not wear a man's clothes. A man shall not wear a woman's clothes. This is equally applied to both male and female. There must be a distinction between male and female. That's what he's saying. 
And those that violate this are an abomination. An abomination means something that's hated. It says an abomination unto God. It's something God hates. Now, in our culture, I think you'd have to agree that the distinctive apparel of a man in our society, pants, has been for millennia in our Western culture. And the distinctive clothing of a woman is a dress or skirt, something of that nature. And so really, to make a clear distinction of male and female, which is what this scripture says, the man should not wear a woman-style clothing, such as a skirt or dress, and a woman should not wear a man-style clothing, such as pants. That is the way to keep that distinction. And I, some people say, well, you know, they've got pants and style for women now. But it says a woman should not wear that which pertains to a man, that which relates or belongs to a man. And really, to keep the principle of this scripture, you, you can't be able to say now, hmm, I see you've got pants on, let's see, let's try to figure out if this is a woman's pants or a man's pants. Let's try to look at the cut, the style, where, where you bought it. No, it, I think the, the principle is you see somebody walking down the street, or you see somebody across the way, you ought to be able to say that is a man or that is a woman, just by glancing at them, just by looking at them, just by the silhouette, just, just by the distant view. There must be a clear distinction of man and woman, woman. And you know, a lot of women, even in Christian churches, not only are they wearing maybe uh, pants that might look very feminine, but there are many women that actually buy clothes that are designed and tailored for men. Boys' jeans, uh, men's military fatigues. Our society doesn't just try to make a distinction. Our society is acknowledging that this is man's apparel, but so what? I was listening to a radio uh, talk show the other day, and they were talking about people that had this desire to dress like the opposite sex. And the, there was a psychologist. She said, well, this is mainly a masculine problem, or a masculine... She didn't want to call her a problem. She wouldn't use that. But she said, this is mainly... Uh, she was talking about a transvestite. That's the technical term for it. She said, this is mainly we're talking about men because after all, women have the choice in our society to cross-dress anyway. I mean, it's not considered a, a problem with them because they can do it in public all the time. She said, it's only really a problem for the men because they're not allowed to do it. She's pointing out a truth there. The women already do that openly. It's just the men that we think it's strange for them to do that. You know, if I were to be speaking here in a dress tonight, uh, the average person would not accept what I have to say. But in the sight of God, logically speaking, what is the difference between me wearing a dress or a woman wearing pants? Is there a difference in the sight of God? The principle is the same. Just because our culture has accepted one, does that mean God has accepted it? I predict if the Lord tarries that we'll see men wearing dresses and skirts routinely. We've already, we already see people like Boy George doing it. Uh, it's, you go to many of our major cities, you can see people doing it in open. Uh, a man wearing a, a woman's dress, makeup, jewelry, things that are traditionally associated with a woman. And I predict that if the Lord tarries, we're going to have to preach this as strongly directed towards the man as we do now perhaps the woman. I was listening on the radio one time where a man was complaining. He was suing his boss because he said his boss wouldn't let him wear a dress to work. He said, I think I ought to have the right to wear a dress the Secretaries that come, they all wear pants. Why can't I wear a dress? I think logically he had a good point. So, somebody says, well, this is Old Testament. This doesn't apply to us today. This is just the law. Well, this same chapter also talks about uh, adultery, rape, and all those things as being sinful. 
Do we just throw out the whole thing just because it's in the Old Testament? No, not at all. We have to look at and, and look and see uh, why do we retain these? Now, it's true. There are some things of the Old Testament, ceremonial law, uh, such as the animal sacrifices. There are some things mentioned in this chapter, such as mixing linen and wool together in one garment. We don't worry about that. What's the difference? Why do we adhere to some things of Old Testament law and not to others? And, and what category should this verse fall under? Well, I think the answer is this. There are some things in the Old Testament that are ceremonial or symbolic. That is, they were ritualistic details that don't affect morality, but they were a typology of a greater spiritual truth. Once you have the greater spiritual truth, there's no need to keep going through the ceremony. For example, Jesus Christ came and died at Calvary. He was the supreme sacrifice for mankind. There's no use going through the Old Testament animal sacrifices when we've got the reality. Now, which is this? Is this ceremonial law or is this moral law? Well, it says it's an abomination unto God, something God hates. God said, I am the Lord, I change not. What he hates, he always hates. This is moral in nature. Do you think it's just a ceremonial thing for a man to be a man, a woman to be a woman? Or is that really moral in nature? I think you have to agree with me. That is the very essence of morality. This law is not just ceremonial. What is the greater truth that's, that's replaced it, if there is such a thing? No, it in itself is embodying the moral truth, the spiritual truth, that God wants a man to look, act, and dress like a man, and God wants a woman to look, act, and dress like a woman. And the two should be distinct. Amen. And just because our society is forgetting that, that doesn't mean that God forgets it. Praise God. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this will give us another example of the same principle. It's not something new. It's the same principle in operation. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't really have time to go into all this chapter as it would be interesting to do, but I think regardless of how you interpret the various portions of this chapter, if you will look at verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, that should establish a very plain truth. 1 Corinthians 11, 13. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely, or that word means proper, that a woman pray to God uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. It's as plain as it could be. It says, if a man has long hair, that's a shame. That's against the will of God. If a woman has long hair... That's what it's supposed to be. Even nature teaches you that. A woman's hair is given to her for a covering. It's given as her glory. A woman should not be uncovered. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it says simply her hair is given to her for a covering. Her hair is a natural covering or a natural veil, a symbolic article of apparel. And so she should have long hair. A man should have short hair. That's exactly what this is saying. Some people say, well, it, you know, he goes on to say, if, any, if you want to be contentious, we have no such custom. Some people say, well, if you want to argue about it, well, just forget what I said. But does that sound like the Word of God? Does that sound like the Word of God to spend these verses explaining what to do and then say, now, if you disagree, please cut out this preceding portion of the Word of God. Now, some people talk like it's just Paul's pet peeve, but we've got to decide, is the Bible the inspired Word of God or not? If it's the Word of God, we've got to follow its teachings. 
And this verse doesn't mean, if you'll read uh, other translations or the original Greek text, what it's saying, if anybody wants to be contentious, we have no other custom than what we've already described. Neither the churches of God. What are you saying? If you want to argue about it, there's nothing to argue about. We all agree this is the right custom. This is the right practice. All the churches of God agree. Somebody said, well, that's just the Corinthians. You know, the Corinthian women had to wear veils to, to be attired properly. But this is not just a Corinthian thing. This is all the churches, the Jewish churches, the, the Greek churches, the Roman churches. It was a transcultural thing that a woman had long hair, a man did not have long hair. And this is just another application of the same principle that we've already seen in Deuteronomy, making a man a man and a woman a woman. And making that obvious outwardly. You say, why does it matter? Just because one woman cuts her hair or one woman wears pants, that doesn't mean that she's uh, very unfeminine or that doesn't mean that she's going into lesbianism or something like that. That may be true, but when the whole culture does it, it definitely affects the culture. We're seeing that in our society. That's the, some of the examples I've been trying to give you. You know, when one person violates God's word, it may not look so bad. But when we see how everybody violates God's word, we see how it does affect our culture. And it is affecting our culture today in many ways. Look at the rising incidence and openness of homosexuality, of divorce, of single-parent homes, of a man abdicating his rightful role and a woman usurping the role. Look at all of these things happening in our society. You see, there's a breakdown of the family, breakdown of what it means to be a Christian husband and father and a Christian wife and mother. And it's due to all of this in our society breaking down the God-given distinction and definition of a man and a woman. And part of that is the outward appearance. I read a Reader's Digest article recently that said, it's talking about the problems, the psychological problems of men. And it said, in every culture, in every society, there's always been certain clothes that men wore that nobody else wore, certain things that men did that nobody else did, that they could remind themselves of their masculinity and their identity. But they said for the first time in human history, in this century, a man has nothing that distinctively distinguishes him as a man any longer. Anything he wears, a woman can wear. Anything he does, a woman can do. There's nothing to reassure a man that he is masculine. And that has devastating psychological effects. And they weren't speaking from a religious view. They were speaking from cultural and society view. But God foresaw that. And he tried to, to help us in this area. Now, somebody says, how does nature teach us? Well, I think Paul was for referring to the universal custom of that day. Uh, if you study Bible dictionaries or what have you, you'll find that the women did not cut their hair. It was not a common practice in that day. In fact, it's only in the 20th century that women have started cutting their hair routinely. You look at all the old pictures, I think it's interesting. Sometimes you can look, uh, I think it was uh, somewhere, I, I saw a display, an AT&T display of their old telephone operators, and they all had Pentecostal hairdos. It's amazing. You look at the uh, Virginia Slims advertisements, and of course they're doing ridicule, but every one of those women have Pentecostal hairdos. All the women of that day had long hair. It's only very recently that we've changed. So in other words, for centuries and centuries, it's been a naturally understood teaching. Now the teaching of nature is breaking down. People no longer understand the teaching of nature because we've departed so far from God. Yet there is one very specific way which I believe nature does very clearly teach us. And it's, it's a little humorous, but it's interesting and very, I think very true. But did you know that a man is ten times more likely to become bald than a woman? 
You ever, ever thought about that? Ever wondered why you see all these bald-headed men? That is, baldness is linked to the male hormone. That is, you have to have, under normal circumstances, a certain amount of chemical male hormone in the blood to trigger off the gene that causes baldness. Now, they, they tell you that a man will inherit genetic baldness through his mother. So he, if a man's worried about going bald, he has to look at his mother's side of the family. But why does his mother ever grow bald? Because it's not triggered off in her. She is carrying the gene, but she just passes it on. And it's the males that, that uh, trigger it. Now, it is possible for a woman to grow bald, but usually uh, it's very rare to, for her to grow completely bald. And usually baldness in a woman is caused by something out of the ordinary, a disease which causes a chemical imbalance uh, by maybe a skin disease, an illness, chemotherapy, a tumor, something of that nature, something unusual, to where if you were to see, or the average person in our society would see a bald-headed woman, totally, absolutely bald-headed woman, that would be strange, unusual, and grotesque, wouldn't it? Has anybody ever seen a totally bald woman? You don't have to raise your hand. I have. Totally bald. I've seen in the Orient the, uh, some of the Buddhist nuns, they shaved their heads bald, and that is the weirdest thing you can imagine. Uh, in World War II, uh, they took some of these women that had uh, collaborated with the Nazis after the war was over, and they shaved their heads uh, to let the whole world know what they had done. It's, it's a kind of a, a, sh a mark of shame and reproach. Uh, even the average woman in the world today, if, she were, if all of her hair to drop out, what would she do? She'd go get a wig, right. She, because baldness is normal and natural and no big deal. If I see a bald-headed man, what would I think? No big deal. It's a man. I'm, I probably wouldn't even, you know, uh, probably wouldn't register necessarily, oh, he's bald, you know. I just, it's a man. But if I were to meet a bald-headed woman, I would think, that's unusual. Isn't that true? Isn't that a teaching of nature in our society? Still remaining. Okay. So what I'm saying is it's considered the normal thing for a woman to have long hair. But it's not considered a woman, normal for not, a woman to, have, to not have hair. If a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Even nature teaches us this. Now, you say, well, how long is long? Well, the Bible does not give a definition of a certain length, and I think it's a good thing it doesn't. Here's what I think it means. As long as your hair will grow, that's long. If your hair, if you're a woman and your hair is only, you know, so it only grows a little bit, but still, you just let it grow naturally. Let nature be your God. How long is long? Let's appeal to the teacher of nature. However long it'll grow, that's long enough. See, if you had any other definition, there'd be some women that their hair couldn't grow that long. There'd be other women, their hair would grow longer. They'd say, well, I could chop it off here. And if I can chop it off here, I can chop it off half an inch shorter than that. And if I could chop it off half an inch shorter than that, I can chop it off three quarters of an inch. You see? And then you'd have nothing to go by. Just appeal to nature. The Nazarite vow. How long was their hair to grow? They weren't supposed to touch it for the length of their vow. Uncut, untouched. To me, uh, verse 5 here of 1 Corinthians, or verse 6. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. And the word shorn there simply means to cut or to cut off. And so what it's saying is, if it's a shame for a woman to have her hair cut, then not to cut it. In other words, not to cut it at all. Let me read you another translation. This is from the New International Version of Footnotes. 
And any woman, this is verses 5 and 6, you might want to follow it along. And any woman who prays or speaks God's message in public worship with nothing on her head disgraces her husband. There is no difference between her and a woman whose head has been shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she might as well cut her hair. And since it is a shameful thing for a woman to shave her head or cut her hair, she should cover her head. Here's another one. Every man who prays or prophesies with long hair dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with no covering of hair on her head dishonors her head. She is just like one of the shorn women. If a woman has no covering, let her be for now with short hair. But since it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair shorn or shaved, she should grow it again. A man ought not to have long hair. Now, somebody says, well, maybe a woman says, I've cut my hair. Or my hair doesn't grow. My hair's falling out. What? Am I in a sense of shame? Here's what I say. Say you've cut your hair and you prayed through. From that moment on, she should grow it again. That's what this verse is saying. If it's a shame for, for you to have short hair, grow it again. The moment you stop cutting it and made that decision, the moment you just let it grow in the sight of God, then that's considered honorable in God's sight, regardless of the technical length. If you made that decision to let it grow, I think God considers it long in his sight. Now, how long is long for a man? Somebody said, well, if a woman just cuts her hair one time, that's considered short. Well, then maybe a man could just cut his hair, you know, once every ten years, and that's short hair. But you have to look at the intent of what God is saying. God is wanting a clear, visible distinction between a man and a woman. So a man's hair would have to be short enough to distinguish him from a woman in his culture. It has to be clear and distinct. And in our culture, we have so many women that do have short hair that we men have to have our hair noticeably and distinctively short so that it's clear to all that we're making a separation. So it must be clearly and observably short. Just go by the natural. And so he's particularly mentioning a couple of things that men have a big problem with. And if you think about it, wrath. Violent rage, anger. A man is much more prone to that than a woman. And he was saying, you men, when you praise God, if you're going to be holy, there's something you better really watch out. And that is, as a man, you have a tendency to fly off the handle, to be domineering, to be violent, to be angry. Get control of that. And then he also said there's another problem that you men really have, and that is doubting. And that's true. Men are more skeptical than women as a rule. You ever notice that? Even in the church, it seems that a woman is more trusting you, a lot of times you have more women come to God than men do and come to God more easily than men do. That's just a, a generality. That's not true in every situation. But it seems that men are much more skeptically minded. Women are much easier to believe. These are problems that men have. But then notice the next verse, 1 Timothy 2.9. In like manner also. Now what does he mean? In the same way. He says just what he's saying is just like the men have got to be holy, in the same way women have to be holy too. Just like the men have to put away some things that would destroy their holiness, so the women have to put away some things that would destroy their holiness. And so now he mentions some problems that women seem to particularly have. However, I should add a footnote to that. In our day, it's not just the women that have this problem, but more and more we're finding the men have the same problem as much as the women do. And we have to address that also. But notice, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. 
with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. He's saying, you women, a lot of times you could have the temptation to dress immodestly. So adorn yourselves or decorate yourselves. Adorn means to decorate, to embellish, display yourself in modest, decent, chaste clothing. Apparel means clothing. And that points out something. He is saying wear modest clothing. That lets you know that some clothing is immodest, right? I mean, some clothing has got to be immodest for him to say, hey, be sure to wear modest clothing. But you know what gets me is that the people in the world, even the Christian denominations, the women will wear bikinis, halter tops, shorts, so on and so on. And that's one step away from nudity. I mean, the next step after that is not wearing anything at all. If that's not immodest, there could be no such thing as immodest clothes. So we know that what the church world definition of modesty has got to be wrong. Whatever the proper definition is, their definition has got to be wrong because they say there's no such thing as immodest clothing. As long as you got something on, that's okay. But the Bible says be careful to wear modest clothing. Now, if you study the culture of that day, what they considered modest and immodest, uh, they sure would consider some of the things today immodest. I mean, here is Paul warning them. In a day when women wore their dresses to the ankles, robes to the ankles, he's saying you better make sure you stay modest. Just what would he have considered immodest? I read somewhere uh, a tract from the 3rd century talking, and this is a uh, church father, so-called, a church leader, and he was warning against these women that go out in the fields and they tuck up their robes above their knees when they're doing their work. He tell, says how bad that is. I mean, that's what they considered immodest. Uh, what does God consider immodest? Let me quickly jump over to Isaiah 47.3. This gives you an example of what God considers immodest. He's talking about Babylon as an immodest woman. He's going to bring judgment on Babylon. He's talking about uh, how indecent they are. Notice in, in Isaiah 47.2, he says, Make bare the leg, uncover the thigh. Verse 3, Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, thy shame shall be seen. He's saying, your legs bare, your thighs uncovered. That's immodest. See, that, base, that gives us a good idea of modesty. That is the uh, torso, the upper portion of the limbs should be covered. Basically, the body should be covered. That's a good definition of modesty. Because the exposed body tends to arouse the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Therefore, it should be covered. Modest clothing. Going back to First uh, Timothy two eight through ten, and let's look at this a little bit more. Uh, verse nine. It talks about modest apparel with shamefacedness. That means a sense of shame, a sense of reverence. That's the problem with the people in our day. They don't have a sense of shame. They do anything, be seen in anything, and they don't feel bad about it. But a modest person, a holy woman, has a sense of shame, a reverence, a self-respect, and decency. Sobriety, that means a soberness. That doesn't mean you have to be mournful, that you can't laugh, can't have humor. But what it means is not to be outlandish, not to be flaunting yourself, but to be sober-minded. And then it says, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Broided hair, braided hair. He's not talking about braiding your hair together in strands, but he's talking about a custom of that day Perhaps it dealt with very elaborate hair arrangements, but in particular, they would wear headdresses 
or they would weave pearls in their hair. They would take silk cords and string gold coins on them and weave that all up in their hair. And so I think he's really talking about very elaborate hairdos, particularly putting jewelry in the hair, adorning yourself extravagantly in the hair. And, you know, this is something that Pentecostal women can take note of. I think a number of years ago it seemed to be more of a problem than perhaps it is today. But in our attempt to be godly with long hair, let's not turn that into a show, uh, something that looks freakish or ostentatious or designed to uh, flaunt ourselves. We've got to use temperance or self-control or moderation in all aspects of our appearance. Not with broaded hair or gold or pearls. And there is your jewelry. And really, I think he's really taking a stand against jewelry. Now, let me qualify this. I know I've got a watch here, and uh, that's called jewelry. But don't look at the label of what it's called. You, I think you have to look at what it's being used for. I don't wear this watch to show off. What do I wear the watch for? To tell time. So to me, that's not considered wrongful. But even a watch, perhaps, could be wrong. If I was wearing a $5,000 gold, uh, gold Rolex watch with all kinds of jewels encrusted on it, I might not be really wearing it to tell time. I might be doing it to show off, to show how I can afford this, to make you notice. In that case, to my mind, even though it's a watch, it could be just as much in violation of the Scripture. It may be a little cheap ring, you see. So it's something I might call functional jewelry. That is something that's used or worn for a purpose, not for adornment. But if the primary purpose is adornment, I mean, if you are wearing something, and of course, most jewelry, that's the only reason why you could wear it, just to show off or to, to let people see something about you, to decorate, adorn yourself. If you're using these things uh, for the purpose of ornamentation or decoration, or, you know, people to notice and look at it, if that's the reason why you're wearing it, to me, that's in violation of the Scripture. Or costly array. That means expensive, very costly, expensive clothing. And again, we've got to have moderation here. You know, sometimes the Pentecostals are good about making categories. Well, I won't wear an earring. I won't wear a nose ring. I won't wear an ankle ring, you know. But now a finger ring, that's okay. Or I won't be caught dead wearing lipstick, but a little mascara, that's different, you know. Or I would never wear jewelry, but, you know, I'll wear really outlandish clothing to try to impress people, you know, make them turn their head, see how great I am, see how good I look, you know, see how much money I've got. You know. But what I'm saying, those things can be just as wrong. We've got to look at the principle. See what I'm saying? It, and the Bible states it here. You know, I don't have to read anything to it. Broaded hair, gold, pearls, costly array. Modern translation would say elaborate hair arrangement, gold, pearls, or extremely expensive elaborate clothing. And like I said, Paul addressed this primarily to the women because that was apparently what he was dealing with. But in our day, the men have to be just as conscious in these areas. Let me give you another. Now, ladies, if you want to really adorn yourself, if you really want to deck yourself out, he says, do it with good works. That's the real way to get the proper kind of attention. First Peter, let me read this. First Peter 3, 3. Here is another witness. We're not left with just one witness, but we've got the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, the two most powerful men of the early church leaders, are coming very plain on this issue. First Peter 3.3, 3, 
whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair, wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in which that is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. He says, don't decorate yourself with the plaiting of the hair. Notice that corresponds directly to what Paul had to say in Timothy. A wearing of gold, there is your jewelry, there is your um, expensive precious metals and stones, which corresponds exactly to the gold and pearls that Paul mentioned. And the putting on of apparel. And there it corresponds directly to what Paul said about a costly array. It's a one-to-one, direct. They're both saying exactly the same thing. Now, somebody will say, but... Wait a minute, Brother Bernard. He's saying here, you know, don't, don't plait the hair, wear gold, put on apparel. Well, we've got to wear clothes. He's not saying don't put on clothes. So we, he's not really saying don't put on gold under all circumstances. Maybe just, he must be saying just don't put on too much. But I want you to look at this carefully. He says don't adorn yourself with the plaiting of a hair. Don't adorn yourself with the putting on of gold. Don't adorn yourself with the wearing of apparel. Sure, we wear clothes for modesty, for uh, comfort, for protection, for warmth, all that. But what he's saying is don't use your clothes as a vehicle for ostentation or adornment or extravagance, bringing attention to yourself. Sure, look attractive, neat, nice, clean, pretty, but don't use your clothes as to, to try to make a big statement about the outward flesh. Now, you wear clothes for other reasons than adornment. You fix your hair to keep it neat, keep it out of the way, keep it nice. But he's saying, don't use your hair as a big sign of adornment. Now, gold. Don't use the gold for adornment. Well, what other reason would you wear jewelry? I mean, that is the reason for it, see? So if you can't wear jewelry for adornment, and that's another way of saying you can't wear jewelry. I guess it'd be all right. Used to, before they had the uh, modern dental uh, advances, uh, gold was about the only thing they could put in the teeth that wouldn't... Uh, decay. And so I guess if you put gold filling in your teeth, you're not putting it there for adornment. You're putting it there to fill your teeth up. So he's not saying don't use gold. He's saying don't use gold for adornment. Don't, and for, for all practical purposes, what I'm getting at is that does outlaw jewelry because what is the reason for it? Unless, you know, watches jewelry or something like that. But the point is anything that's worn for ornamentation, for adornment, for outward display, drawing attention to the physical self, draw, drawing attention to your display, that is not supposed to be what a Christian man or woman wears. But you're supposed to be holy in the outward appearance. Now, the New Testament doesn't mention makeup by name, but I think you can see the principle is pretty clear here. If we're guarding against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, isn't that exactly what makeup highlights? It highlights the physical appeal. Uh, if we're supposed to be sober-minded, if we're supposed to be shame-faced, if we're not supposed to adorn ourselves outwardly with these various things, then makeup would fall directly under this category of outward adornment. And indeed, you find the Old Testament mentions makeup a number of times, and it's always in a negative way, always in a wrongful way. Just to uh, read one scripture, we won't take hardly any time on this, but just to read Jeremiah 4.30, the Lord likens his backslidden nation to an adulterous woman. And when thou art spoiled, what wilt thou do? Though thou clothest thyself with crimson, though thou deckest thee with ornaments of gold, though thou rentest thy face with painting, in vain shall thou make thyself fair, thyself fair. Thy lovers will despise thee, they will seek thy life. So he gives an example of 
a disgraceful woman, an unholy woman, an adulterous woman that wears all these ornaments, that tries to use her clothes just for show. Not that there's anything wrong with clothes, but he's putting in the context of somebody that's trying to act the part of an immoral woman. And notice the jewelry and the makeup is considered all part and part of that outward adornment, which is not meant to be for a holy woman. Let me summarize what I have to say here on outward appearance tonight. I think we can discern five principles that I am in covering all these scriptures that we've covered. There are five principles that we can go by as far as godly appearance is concerned. Number one is modesty. We must be modest in our dress. That excludes immodest clothing. It includes, by the way, you can be very modest, have your dress as long as you want it and your sleeves and all that, and still be very immodest in your spirit the way you wear the dress the way you act towards a guy. So you can't be legalist and say, now, if you will wear your dress this long, then you're holy. Because you could have all kind of clothes in the world and still be very immodest and bold and brazen and flaunting and seductive in your behavior. And that's just as wrong. And that's a problem that a lot of times we Pentecostals have in our, uh, among our people, perhaps, perhaps our youth group, picking up these ideas of the world. Even though you cram them into holy clothes, they still act just like the world anyway. So... Modesty of dress, of attitude, of speech. And I think modesty would exclude makeup, as I just mentioned, because makeup is deliberately highlighting the sex appeal is what it's doing. Second principle is we reject ornamentation. That is, we reject wearing things strictly for ornament, strictly for show. And that is jewelry, makeup, uh, extremely elaborate hairdos, extremely elaborate expensive clothes, uh, even a very elaborate showy lifestyle. You know, some people just like to show off in, in their lifestyle. And we need to be moderate in that, you know, in, in the things that we do, the things we buy, the, the whole way we live. It should not be to show off, but it should be uh, a moderate, self-controlled lifestyle. Third principle is moderation in cost. We're supposed to be good stewards of what God has given us, and that means we should not be extravagant in what we spend. Again, that excludes jewelry because jewelry cannot be justified as good stewardship. You're buying it for no worthwhile reason at all. Uh, again, that excludes extremely expensive clothing. We must have nice clothing, or if we can't afford it, but we've got to be good stewards in clothing as in all other areas of our life. We're not really responsible to God just for 10%. We're responsible to God for 100% to be good stewards of what God has given. Number four is the distinction between male and female. A man to look, act, dress like a man, and a woman to look, act, and dress like a woman. And we've talked about the hair. We've talked about pants and dresses and that. And then the fifth principle, I would just call it separation from worldly fashion. Now, just because something is a fashion in the world, that doesn't mean it's wrong. Don't, I don't mean that. I don't think we can be up to date. We can be nice and so on. But there are certain styles and trends of the world that may be associated with immorality or wrongful things. And even though it may not be immodest in this particular situation, or even, you know, it may not violate the other principle, if it really fits in with a real worldly spirit, we need to stay away from it. You know, it, uh, a while back, the, uh, well, let me just give you a hypothetical example. If the homosexual community all of a sudden uh, developed a certain uh, style of clothes, even if it was considered modest, I wouldn't want to go out and buy it because I don't want to be associated with that, Okay. So it's not just a matter of saying, well, is it modest? It's also a matter of 
what are you saying in this type of clothing? And so we've got to be careful. That's why just jumping into all the latest fads and fashions is, is not wise. Let's wait a little while. Don't try to be on the cutting edge of Hollywood and Madison Avenue in Paris. Just wait a little while to be in the mainstream. Be uh, moderate. Separate ourselves from these worldly associations. Well, I could talk a lot more about other aspects. One more little thing that I would inject before closing tonight. That is what I might call worldly amusements. And this covers a whole lot of things. I know that your pastor can be more specific in this area. But I don't think God is opposed to us having fun, enjoying ourselves, having a good time. Games, sports, activities, those are not wrong in themselves. However, there are a lot of things the world has polluted with a worldly atmosphere. And that's why we avoid a lot of things, a lot of the big sports events of this world. It's so filled with a worldly spirit. What do I mean with worldly spirit? Spirit of competition, rage, lust, lewd gestures, lewd talk, um, immorality, alcohol, tobacco, cursing. When an atmosphere is so filled with all these things, you've got to say, wait a minute, even though the original activity could be innocent, the atmosphere makes it something I can't be a part of. You know... I've even been in restaurants before. I made myself a mental promise. I'm not going back to that restaurant. Certainly nothing wrong with restaurants, nothing wrong with eating. But I just didn't feel good. The music, the, the waitress, uh, uh, the clothing, the, the insinuating lewd remarks that they made to us, uh, some of the way the other people were acting, I just didn't feel comfortable in that place anymore. So I said, hey, I'm not coming back to this place again. We've got to be sensitive to the spirit. Not, I'm not saying being legalistic. We can't make a list of do's and don'ts. You know, it, it depends on the local situation. It depends. The pastor can give you specific guidance, but even there, the pastor can't be there everywhere you go. The pastor can't police the whole city. Somewhere, we've got to develop a sense of godliness and holiness in our own lives and say, look, I'm not saying if I go into that restaurant, I'm going to hell. I'm not saying if I do this certain activity, I'm going to hell. But I'm going to say, wait a minute. Sometimes things get so saturated with a worldly spirit that I just don't feel comfortable in there. It just kind of rubs off on you. Have you ever been in that kind of atmosphere, maybe some kind of party or something? You couldn't say it's sin, but you go away feeling like you need to take a bath or something. You feel kind of dirty. You feel, you know, the conversation, the, maybe the smoke, maybe the whatever it was. You just kind of felt bad. Be sensitive to that voice of the spirit and seek out holy and godly environments. Amen? And I don't believe in just saying, don't do this, don't do that. Anything that we don't participate in, I think we ought to have a more Christian alternative for it. Uh, you know, as a youth group, we're not just in the business saying, don't do this, don't do that. But we want to provide wholesome Christian alternatives. In instead of getting involved in things that will be detrimental to the spiritual man, let's get involved in things that will be beneficial to the physical man, to the mental and social side of man, but also compatible with the spiritual side of man at the same time. Amen. And maybe that little brief summary will touch on a lot of practical areas that we didn't have time to get really get involved with tonight. Well, let me summarize it all up in closing with this scripture. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 13. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. There are a lot of more things that I would like to cover. If I've offended you in one of these, I'm sorry if the way I said something offended you, if I said the wrong thing, but I can't apologize for what I believe and what I teach. Sorry if I said it wrong, but I'm not sorry that I taught the Word of God. 
If something you disagree with, let me say once again, you need to pray about it, you need to study it, you need to decide, is this the Word of God? If it's the Word of God, then you have to take the attitude of Psalm 119. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. I'm going to say, Lord, I'm not going to let the Word offend me. If it rubs me raw, I'm gonna ha- that's where I need help the most. You know, that points out where I need to get a hold of my attitude. Because if it's the Word, I'm going to submit to it. I'm going to learn to love it. Amen. Praise God. So, if I come across strict or too strict, well, if it's the wrong way I said it, I apologize. If it's the content of what I said, you have a responsibility, Church of Scripture, to pray, to counsel with your pastor, to find out what the will of God is. And once you're convinced it's the will of God, then it's your responsibility. It's not just my opinion versus yours. It's not just a preacher coming on pretty strong. It's what's the will of God? What's the will of God? Amen. Philippians 2, the last half of verse 12, and then going to verse 13. It says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that doesn't mean we can save ourselves. That doesn't mean we can invent our own plan of salvation. That doesn't mean we can work our way to heaven. But what he's saying is you've got to work your salvation out. It's given to you as a free gift, but you're still your responsibility. And you've got to do it with fear. That is all respect and trembling. It's like carrying a precious priceless vase you do it with fear and trembling you know respect care you don't want to drop that thing and break it same way with your salvation you have to cherish it enough that hey i'm going to hang on to this i'm going to pamper this i'm going to protect this i'm going to keep it i've got the chance of a lifetime and i don't want to let it slip through my fingers through carelessness that's what he's saying but then to balance it to show you that you're not saving yourself look at the next verse For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is working in. You work it out. See, God's got to do the work. We're just cooperating and letting it flow out. God is working in to save me, to make me holy. I have got to treasure that working carefully. And here is the beautiful thing of holiness. God works in you both to will and to do and to do. You know what that's saying? God gives you the will. God gives you the desire. And God gives you the ability to do. Grace gives us both the desire and the power to live for God. Now let me show you how beautiful that is. Let's say as a sinner, you come to God and you say, Lord, I'm in this life of sin, but I need to change. There's some aspects, Lord, that I, I enjoy these pleasures of sin for a season. And maybe something I've said in the last three lessons. Maybe there's something that's hit home. Probably something has hit somebody everywhere. Probably hit, I know some things I've touched on have hit me. And, and they should hit us all because we're dealing with Christian living, the principles of God's Word. Being a little more circumspect in using my tongue. Being a little more in my attitudes, my thoughts, whatever. Whatever hits you. The first thing you can say, Lord, change my desire. I know I shouldn't like this. I know I shouldn't want this. Did you know God could do a miracle of changing your desires? You fast. You pray. You concentrate on God. You get involved in the Word. You're faithful in church. You know what? God will change your very desires. And the things you once loved to do, you don't love to do them anymore. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. A new creature in Christ Jesus. What I'm saying is there's hope. You say, but I enjoy that. 
I like that TV too much. What I'm saying is, if you recognize God's word and God's will and get earnest with God, God will change your desires. God will give you godly desires. Now, that's quite a deal, isn't it? God says, you've got to live holy. And he says, but I'll give you that desire. I'll change the way you think. I'll change your very likes and dislikes. You can't beat something like that. You've got to, love, you've got to do it. And then he gives you the want to where you long to do it. That's what you want to do. That's the way you want to live. But you know what would be a, 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 that would be sad if that were all. Because you'd had this great desire, but you always fail. Not only does he give you the desire, he gives you the power. And so the next step is, when you develop that godly desire, and you say, but Lord, I'm a failure. Lord, I can't do it. Then that's when you get down to business again. You say, Lord, give me the power. Give me the deliverance. Give me the walk in the Spirit. And if you will dedicate yourself, if you'll be sincere, if you'll be determined and desperate and hungry, if you'll pray, if you'll study the Word, if you'll be faithful to church, if you'll be obedient to the voice of the preaching of God's Word, then God will not only give you a godly desire and transform your mind, but He'll also give you the power to fulfill those godly desires. Now that's what I like about our salvation. You can't beat it. It's like saying, to enter this thing, you've got to have a million dollars. And you say, oh, no. And then God slips a million dollars in your back pocket. Say, no big deal, I can do that. God gives you the desire to live holy, and he gives you the power to live holy. Whatever your problem area is, and we all have problem areas, I want you to know God will give you the want to, and he'll give you the power. If you only you'll be faithful and persistent and dedicated. If you'll fall in love with him, you fall in love with a holy God and a desire for holiness. He'll give you the desire and the power to do his will.